Thank you, Emma. Well, this story, Beheading of John the Baptist, is a story that has been retold and reimagined in countless works of art. But it's probably a story that is seldom, if ever, preached on. I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon on this before. For novelists, it provides all the ingredients of a gripping political thriller. For playwrights, it sets the scene of a captivating historical tragedy. And painters would be hard-pressed to find a more captivating image than the prophet's head on a silver platter. But for preachers, it's not so easy. While this story might inspire the imagination, what does it have to say to the soul? What does it have to teach us about the love of God? You see, the job of a preacher is different from that of an artist. Artists can peddle in despair, but preachers are compelled to hope. The task of the preacher is to speak the gospel, to allow God's word to bring the good news into our situations. And that means explaining how a passage fits into the big story of salvation. So maybe you can appreciate my problem. It's hard to find the gospel in this dark and gruesome tale. And so when I sat down to write this sermon, I had two questions in mind. Where is the good news in this story? And how does it fit into the rest of the gospel? Well, the answer to the first question is actually quite simple. There isn't any good news. Now, this is a very gruesome story. It's a grisly story. There is no happy ending. There is no resurrection on the third day. There is no Easter Sunday to John's Good Friday. The only resurrection John experiences is in Herod's guilty imagination, a bit like the ghost of Banquo at Macbeth's banquet. No, good news is scant in this story. Evil triumphs. The powerful humiliate the weak. The wicked silence the righteous. Death wins over life. Well, the answer to the second question is a little harder to find. I mean, why is such a dark tale, lacking in hope, included in the Gospels at all? More than that, why is it given such prominence? Now, this question has caused me a bit of head-scratching. You see, when you think about it, It is a very strange story to include in the Gospels at all. For a start, this description of Herod's banquet is the longest passage in the Gospels that refers to someone other than Jesus. Now this might be understandable if it was exclusively about John the Baptist. He is, after all, the forerunner of Christ. The one who prepared the way for Jesus' ministry. And Matthew might be trying to show us that he's also the one who prepares the way for his death. But this narrative is not exclusively about John the Baptist. It's about someone much less wholesome. Herod. Herod Antipas. Perhaps you don't agree with me. Well, you need to look closely at the grammar of the passage. Now, I'm an English teacher, so bear with me. Remember, every sentence has a subject and an object. Well, who is the subject of this passage? Herod is. It is Herod who speaks. 
Herod who arrests, Herod who imprisons, Herod who promises, Herod who orders, Herod who regrets. That's right, Herod. John is only the object of this passage. The so-called villain of the piece becomes the focus of Matthew's narrative. Now you have to agree that that is a little strange. But if you're still not convinced, you should take a look at Mark's account of this story. Because there the incongruity is even more pronounced. You see, Mark's gospel is by far the shortest of the four gospels. He does not like to waste time on extraneous detail. He likes to get to the point. Indeed, the gospel is so concise that it leaves out the the nativity story altogether. And it just about mentions the resurrection before a pretty hasty ending. And yet, for some reason, the story of Herod's banquet is narrated in all its gruesome detail. In fact, it's told in even more detail than we find it here in Matthew. So, what is so significant about this story? Why is it retold in full technicolor when the nativity story doesn't make the final cut? Well, these are the sorts of questions I've spent the past couple of weeks thinking about. And it's what I want us to explore together this morning. Because one thing is sure, This story is not in the gospel by accident. Far from it. You see, I think that it's only when we unravel these two fundamental questions, when we work out why this story is included in the first place and why it's given such prominence, that we will understand what it truly means for the gospel. So I ask you to bear with me. Because I think if we explore the significance of Herod and his banquet we might just come to a richer understanding of the passage. We might see that although bad news does dominate, this story points the way to a fuller understanding of the good news that is offered to each one of us in Jesus Christ. So, let's take a step back for a moment. Right back out of the gospel, right back into history, as we find out a little bit more about this Herod Antipas and what we are to make of him. Well, the first thing that we need to understand about Herod is that he did not have, shall we say, a conventional upbringing. His father was Herod the Great, and he was not the best role model. He was married 10 times and had 14 children. And the young Antipas learned very quickly that a king could have whatever or whoever he wanted, whenever he wanted. There was no royal hunger that could not be satisfied. And he would have learned too that power and self-preservation were the chief aims of a sovereign. This lesson would have been taught to the young Antipas very early on and in blood. You'll remember the nativity story. When Herod the Great heard about the birth of Jesus, he ordered the massacre of hundreds of baby boys. Well, that was just one of the many acts of brutality committed by Herod the Great. But for Antipas, this lesson would have been taught at home. Because Herod the Great even executed some of his own children, if he believed they were a threat to his reign. Antipas probably shuddered at a saying that was being whispered on the streets of Jerusalem at the time. 
It is safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. So when Herod the Great died, his succession was disputed. And Palestine descended into a period of anarchy. Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, paints a brilliant picture of the chaotic political landscape at the time. Listen to what he wrote almost 2,000 years ago. He says, The whole country was without any government and erupted into violence. 2,000 of Herod's army, who had been disbanded, followed his cousin, Achubus, in rebellion and were driven into the hills. Judas, son of Ezekias, the bandit, plundered Galilee, while Simon, a slave of Herod, crowned himself king and burned the royal palace in Jericho until he was caught and beheaded. Athrogenes, a huge shepherd, also put on a diadem. With his burly brothers, he conducted a guerrilla campaign, and others also spread ruin and desolation over the country. Well, it was left to Caesar Augustus to establish rule and restore order. Herod's surviving sons, Antipas included, travelled to Rome to petition their case. And Augustus even heard from a delegation of Jews who were so fed up with the Herod dynasty that they campaigned to be annexed to the Roman province of Syria. A bit like an ancient version of direct rule. Augustus' solution surprised everyone. He divided Herod's kingdom into four. Herod Antipas was made tetrarch of Galilee and Perea, with the other territories going to his brothers and his sister. Now, why do I mention all of this? Well, I think it gives us some idea of what it must have been like to actually govern in Palestine at this time. The pressure to keep on the side of the emperor, as well as contending with all the competing Jewish factions at home, could not have been easy. And it is not surprising that most rulers didn't last very long in the post. But, unlike his siblings... Herod Antipas was actually a reasonably successful monarch. Defying the odds, he remained on the throne for 42 years. He embarked on an ambitious building project. At times, he even defended Jewish rights and customs against the might of Rome. Herod's coins, for example, carried no idolatrous images of the emperor. And when Pontius Pilate caused offence in Jerusalem... Um, by displaying Roman paraphernalia. It was Antipas who successfully negotiated their removal. So it's not enough to simply dismiss Herod as some sort of monster like his father. He was a cruel man, yes. He was a man consumed by his own feelings of self-importance and driven by pleasure. But he was a much more complicated man than this too. He was a man living under the shadow of a very dark family history. He was a minor ruler struggling to govern God's people in the shackles of Rome. And he was a man who was continually at odds with his own Jewish identity. And I think this is how the gospel writers want to perceive him as well. Mark includes a very interesting verse about Herod in chapter 6 of his gospel. Look at what he writes. He says, Herod was afraid of John because he knew that John was a good and holy man 
And so he kept him safe. He liked to listen to John, even though he became greatly disturbed every time he heard him. Now, I don't know about you, but this description jars with my preconceived ideas. We could easily miss these words in the context of the atrocity Herod commits at his birthday party. But Mark includes these words to remind us that this story is much more messy than it first appears. Yes, Herod disagreed with John, but he saw that he was good. Yes, Herod silenced John, but he also listened to him. Herod murdered John, but he also kept him safe. You see, it is too easy and far too convenient for us to dismiss dismiss Herod as some pantomime villain. This verse from Mark reminds us that he was all too human. And like many of us, he was a person at war with himself. We read that he recognized John's goodness and his holiness, qualities that he admired but also feared. Herod loved to hear John preach, even though the truth of what he heard cut him to the bone. You see, whether he understood it or not, Herod recognized a truth in John's preaching. The celebrated preacher Fred Craddock puts it like this. What's frightening about listening to John preach is that he puts you in the presence of God. And that's what everybody wants. And that's what everybody doesn't want. Because the light at the altar is different from every other light in the world. When Herod heard John preach, he was exposed to the penetrating light of God. A light that magnifies the dirt and grime in our lives. This is what John was preaching. Repent and be baptised. Turn away from the suffocating darkness of your own life and turn to the radiance of God's love. But like many of us, Herod wanted this and didn't want this at the same time. Yes, he wanted John's goodness, but he was far too attached to his own wickedness that he had grown accustomed to. You see, Herod had a very particular sin that he was unwilling to give up or to recognize. In fact, it was because of this that John had been imprisoned in the first place. John had taken a very public stance against Herod and his marriage to Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Now, it's important to point out that his father, his brother, sorry, was not in fact dead at this point. Instead, Herod had forced Philip to divorce Herodias so that he could have her all to himself. And after, he divorced divorced his own wife too, of course. Herod was greatly disturbed because he knew that John was right. But he was not prepared to do anything about it. And so there comes a point when Herod is no longer willing to listen. And he agrees to his new stepdaughter's sadistic desire. We read in the passage that Herod is distressed. 
to give in to her request. But he's not distressed enough to do the right thing. Once again, Herod shows an unwillingness to repent. Even when Herod has time to think about his actions, when he is sober and in the cold light of day, he is still unwilling to show true repentance. We see this at the beginning of the passage Emma's just read to us, which takes place sometime after John's death. On hearing about this man, Jesus, Herod declares, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. Now there is terror in John's words, but it's the wrong sort of fear. Once again, Herod fears for his crown rather than his soul. And in his greed for power, he sees only a vengeful ghost rather than Jesus, the bread of life before him. The commentator William Barclay is right when he says that Herod's words here are a sign of his guilty conscience. But this was guilt without reparation. Yes, Herod may well have been distressed when his gruesome order was carried out, but there is a difference between remorse and repentance. Remorse wallows in self-pity and regret. Repentance changes the way we think and the way we act. This is what John had been trying to tell him, if only he had listened. I think there's a lesson here for all of us. Because like Herod, we struggle to let go of those besetting sins. Those sins that we have gotten used to. It might be an obsession with work. A compulsion to constantly check our emails. It might be a need to be popular. With more interest in our Facebook status than our family. It might be a love of money. Of owning nice things. It might be a tendency to gossip. Or to take secret pleasure in the misfortune of others. It might be anger at words towards a friend. Sexual temptation. A misuse of power past mistake that we can't forgive whatever it is we all have those habitual sins that weigh us down and can keep us from enjoying the fullness of life that Christ offers us it's not that we necessarily want these things in fact we know that they are bad for us and in our better moments we resolve to shake them off but the problem is that they have become habits They have been written into the DNA of our lives. The theologian Neil Plantinga describes the struggle with sin as an addiction. This is quite long, but follow what he says here. The real human predicament, he writes, as scripture reveals, is that inexplicably, irrationally, we all keep living our lives against what's good for us. In what can only be called the mystery of iniquity, human beings from nearly the beginning have so often chosen to live against God, against each other, against God's world. We live even against ourselves. An addict, for example, partakes of a substance or practice that he knows might kill him. 
For a time he does so freely. He has a choice. He merely starts a conversion unto death. And for reasons he can't fully explain, he doesn't stop until he crashes. He starts out with a choice. He ends up with a habit. And the habit slowly converts to a kind of slavery that can be broken only by God. A slavery that can be broken only by God. Of course, this is what Herod, in all his power, cannot do. Oh yes, he's able to bow down to Caesar to receive the treasures of this world. But he is unwilling to humble himself before the one who has real power. To break his habit and share with him the treasures of the kingdom of heaven. And you know, I think this is where we find the answers to the questions I posed at the beginning. Where is the good news? And why is this passage here for us in the first place? Well, you see, I think Matthew uses this story of Herod's banquet for symbolic purpose. And to understand this, you need to look at what comes before and what comes after this story. I'm almost finished, so bear with me. If you had your Bibles and the pews there, you could look at the previous chapter and see that there Jesus taught about two kingdoms. One that glorifies God and one that worships the self. Herod's birthday party dramatizes the latter. It is a metaphor for the kingdom of this world. At this party, the self is glorified. Every whim is satisfied. Every depraved thirst is quenched. But Herod's banquet of carnal delights is not the only meal in Matthew's gospel. Jesus too hosts meals. And one of them follows immediately after this passage. When he shares five loaves and two fish with guests in their thousands. A little while later, Jesus will eat meals with sinners. The unclean with tax collectors, with prostitutes. And of course, there is the most important meal of all, the one that we continue to share with him when we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper. All these meals stand in stark contrast to, in total opposition to, Herod's banquet. At Jesus' meals, crowds are welcomed, not just the elite, The poor are fed, not just the rich. Women are guests at the table, not there to entertain or to serve. So, why is Herod's banquet in the gospel? Well, I think it's because it reminds us why we so desperately need the good news that Jesus brings. Herod's sacrilegious feast represents the kingdom of the evil one. That Jesus warned about in the previous chapter. Well, the food might taste good at first, but it leaves a very bitter aftertaste. I think this is the answer to our questions. As Matthew takes us from the depravity of Herod's feast to the sanctity of the Lord's Supper, we learn what the good news really means. That in Christ's death, we can sit and eat the bread and drink the wine that brings new life to all.
And I really am almost finished. But I'll end with this. In the poem Paradise Lost, Adam and Eve are given some sage advice. Govern well thy appetite, lest sin surprise thee and her black attendant, death. Now, I don't know if John Milton had Herod in mind when he penned these words, but it seems to me they sum up the tragedy of his life. Herod's unchecked, ungoverned, and unrestrained appetite led to a death that was far worse than anything he could inflict on John the Baptist. Perhaps if Herod had heard these words, he would have understood the bitter irony of his birthday party. That it was a celebration not of his life, but of his death. Better still, if he had checked his appetite, perhaps he too could have taken his seat at Christ's banquet. A meal that remembers a death, but paradoxically, mysteriously, wondrously promises new life. This feast of bread and wine is open to us all. Let us not make the same mistake as Herod. Let us not allow our remorse and our regret to blind us from the love of God. Let us not allow our appetite for the feast of this world to dull our hunger for the heavenly banquet that is to come.